Stay hungry, stay foolish. America has gone from an open, competitive marketplace to an economy where a few very powerful companies dominate key industries that affect our daily lives. Digital monopolies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon act as gatekeepers to the digital world. Amazon is capturing almost all online shopping dollars. We have the illusion of choice, but for most critical decisions, we have only one or two companies when it comes to high-speed internet, health insurance, medical care, mortgage title insurance, social networks, internet searches, or even consumer goods like toothpaste. Every day, the average American transfers a little of their paycheck to monopolists and oligopolists. The solution is vigorous antitrust enforcement to return America to a period where competition created higher economic growth, more jobs, higher wages, and a level playing field for all. Today's show is the story of industrial concentration, but it matters to everyone because the stakes could not be higher. It tackles the big questions of why is the US becoming a more unequal society? Why is economic growth anemic despite trillions of dollars of federal debt and money printing? Why the number of startups has declined and why are workers losing out? We welcome the author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition, Jonathan Tepper. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Man, thank you for this read. It was an uncomfortable read. You did a great job of keeping it jargon-free and understandable for the masses. But before we jump into the book, to ensure we're all on the same page, I'd love if we could just do one thing, since we're going to be talking about monopolies, duopolies, and oligopolies. Could you give a very brief explanation of each of those terms? Certainly. The definitions are important because people often use the terms uh, interchangeably, and I think that it does make some sense. A monopoly is an industry where one company is uh, the main or essentially only seller. They essentially have 80, 90, or 100% market share. Google, for example, essentially is a monopoly when it comes to search. They're close to 90% globally. You could argue that perhaps they've earned that because they're just a much better search engine. I think that's probably the case. The question, of course, is what do they do with that power and can they exclude other competitors or go into other industries? Duopolies are essentially industries where there are two players. So in some industries, this is purely artificial and it's due to government regulations. So if you think of Moody's and S&P, there are two companies that rate all the bonds that are issued in the United States. And that's because there's a law that essentially makes it very difficult for competitors to come in. There are other industries like Boeing and Airbus where the scale of making very, very large planes is such that it just doesn't make sense to have many players. You and I could not go and set up an airplane company you know, and sink dozens of billions of dollars into plant equipment and R&D. So that's a duopoly. And so there's some industries you know, where it just doesn't make sense to have a lot of players. Then an oligopoly is an industry generally where there are four players or fewer, four to three players that control the market. And if you look at, for example, the U.S. railway industry, it's now down to an oligopoly. In fact, I would argue that, that these can be local monopolies because they don't tend to compete with each other in their region. Uh, but you essentially have four railway companies that control all freight in the U.S. And then you have essentially four major airlines uh, in the U.S. that uh, control the airline uh, industry. So that's an oligopoly. People generally, and I have also used the terms interchangeably. 
Part of the reason for that is that when you end up with very few players in an industry, the companies can essentially collude, whether it's explicitly or tacitly with each other. So the, you know, the CEOs could either get together in a smoke-filled room and decide that they're going to raise prices at the same time, or they could just do that naturally because when one company raises prices, the other follows suit. And so you can end up with a situation where, for example, we've seen this with drug companies where two companies make insulin, and when one company raises the insulin price, the other immediately raises it by almost the exact same amount. And so it's almost as if they were calling each other up on the phone, but they're really just observing each other doing it. So the term monopoly, I think, can be used interchangeably, whether you're talking about monopoly, duopoly, or oligopoly. They tend to all behave in the same way. And the other term that came across in the book that I hadn't come across before that's important is monopsony. Yeah, so that's a very technical term, but I think it's one that the average person should get to know. In a monopoly, there's one seller. So if you think of you know, Rockefeller with Standard Oil, he was the only person selling oil at the time. And that's one seller. In a monopsony, there's only one buyer. And the classic textbook definition of a monopsony is a coal town where the coal company is the only buyer of labor. And a monopsony essentially is the only buyer. Or it might be the steel industry only had one monopoly selling steel, that company then would be the only buyer for the inputs that go into steel, like iron ore. And so if you are a monopsonist, it means that you generally have quite a lot of power over whoever's selling you labor or whoever's selling you inputs. And so often monopolists are monopsonists as well, meaning that they're the only buyer for a given product, whether it's labor or inputs. To set the tone of the book, you start with the story of David Dow, which shows us the power of oligopolies and American capitalism. I wanted to pick something that people could relate to and something that people knew about, but if I could sort of cast it essentially in economic terms. And the airline industry has essentially gone down to an oligopoly with four players, and this was after a series of mergers in 2010 to 2012. And in the case of Dr. Dow, they pulled him off the flight. And this resonated with people because most people you know, feel that they're nickel and dimed and they're abused by airlines. Airline prices had fallen for years. And then finally, once the mergers went through, prices started going back up. And then airlines basically started charging for everything, you know, whether it was, you know, for seat assignments, whether it was for carrying luggage on. And so that's sort of the story that I start the book with. The reason why I started it was that in the days after everyone was outraged about the man being pulled off the plane, People were talking about maybe boycotting the airline, and they were surprised because, one, you can't really boycott these. Most of the airlines essentially control local hubs, which are called fortress hubs. So if you live in, in Charlotte, you have no choice but to use American. If you fly out of Dallas, you have no choice but to use American. If you fly out of Atlanta, you have no choice but to use Delta. These have essentially between like you know 77 and 90% market share in many of the, the markets. But the stock went up. Uh, after the incident because people realized that the airlines were so powerful that it didn't really matter how much consumer outrage was, uh, they had all the power. And uh, you know, there's even a headline saying, uh, airlines can treat you like trash because they're a monopoly. You tell us that we're seeing the death of competition and competition is the basis for evolution. But what does real capitalism look like? Capitalism, in my view, and based on most of the dictionary definitions, although clearly some people want to diminish uh, competition as an element, but it has two central elements. One is 
private property, so the ownership of, of capital. The second element is competition. And if you have private property, but you don't have any real competition, then you, you don't effectively have a capitalist uh, system. And in 1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, what we had was the battle for private property had been won. And we'd seen that communism itself and socialism was a abject disaster. Almost the entire world essentially had turned capitalist. The problem is that the battle for competition is still raging. And in many industries, there's just less and less competition. But one of the things that helps create monopolies often is essentially, one, the government allows mergers to go through in industries with high barriers to entry, but also the government essentially erects barriers to entry around industries through increased regulation. And so as we've seen an explosion in regulation in many industries, this has also coincided essentially with a loss of competition. And there's quite a lot of evidence, and I have this in the footnotes you know, from the IMF and others, where as you get an increase in regulation, you get an increase in concentration. So regulation itself acts as a barrier to entry. You start each chapter with a guiding quote. And I thought the quote that opens chapter one is the Warren Buffett quote that goes, there's class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class that's making war and we're winning. And I thought it really set the tone for what we're seeing, this concentration of wealth, not just for individuals, but also in oligopolies, monopolies and corporate concentration. I picked that quote in part because I thought that one of the key problems of concentration comes from essentially the consequences. And in the book, uh, I have a chapter in there essentially outlining the consequences of concentration. Among those are uh, declining productivity, declining economic dynamism. Another one, critical one, is the increase in income inequality. And in the last chapter of the book, I, I talk about Piketty, and Thomas Piketty basically argues that capitalism itself has an inherent flaw, which is that returns on capital get bigger and bigger, and that just leads to an increase in inequality, and then you end up with presumably some sort of revolution which sets things right eventually. But I don't think that there's an inherent flaw in capitalism. I started writing the book because I was actually doing uh, research, trying to understand one, why profit margins were higher and why inequality was increasing. In my view, Piketty's argument makes no sense because if you start a, a business that has high profits, you know, I'm going to want to go in and compete with you. And that's really what you see generally in capitalism. And it's a good thing. It leads to greater economic dynamism. I thought the only way that Piketty's argument makes sense, which is that returns to capital become persistently higher, is if you don't have competition. And so I thought the competition angle had to be the angle um, that I needed to explore. And so I started looking into all the research out there. That tied in very much with my day-to-day -day job, which is very perception. We build leading economic indicators and our indicators for wages were going up, but wages really weren't uh, following suit and, and rising. And so I thought there has to be a reason here for this disparity and what's, what's going on. And sure enough, a lot of the research uh, that I was finding showed that an increase in concentration essentially leads to monopsony or, or greater concentration on the buying power for labor. And then also, you know, even industries that may be competitive through the use of non-compete clauses and, and mandatory arbitration, essentially employers can become the monopolist or of the workers' wages, right? So if you work for a fast food chain, the fast food industry is fairly competitive, but if they force you to sign a non-compete where you can't go get a job elsewhere, then effectively they've sort of uh, reduced competition and put themselves in the role of a monopsonist for your labor. Yeah, and I thought this was really interesting. So this shows why the common worker is getting paid the same or less year on year, but also you highlight 
the gig economy is not necessarily a good thing here. People are working on contract labor and people working in these big firms are part-timers and are still living on food stamps despite working in these big name factories. It's very interesting. When you have fewer companies competing in an industry, you can end up with collusion on, on prices. And I have quite a lot of evidence in the book in terms of many different cases and studies showing that there's uh, uh, lots of collusion on pricing. But another aspect of this is that you can end up with collusion on wages and uh, companies can decide that they're not going to compete with each other. And in fact, that's what you, what you do see often. And uh, you, know, you can go to the uh, FTC and the DOJ's websites and they have cases you know, so if you end up, for example, with a, a case of that, that I, I looked at recently, I didn't include it in the book. Um, I, I didn't see it before I'd written the book, but that's the one that comes to mind, which essentially is that there are you know, two main companies that make air brakes in the world for trains. Uh, both of them got together and decided that they weren't going to poach each other's engineers. I can tell you that the engineers are certainly paid less well than if it was a competitive market where these companies had to, in fact, bid for workers' wages. And so... To the extent that industries get concentrated, they then don't have to actually, they can collude on wages and they don't have to bid up workers' wages. The other thing that we're seeing that we don't directly link to the control of Opolis is the rural versus urban divide. Yes, uh, that's actually a very a critical question. Uh, I have a chart in the book and it takes research that was done by uh, three very great economists, Marshall Steinbaum, Jose Azar, and Ioana Marinescu. The three of them basically looked at commuting zones in the U.S., and then they looked at how concentrated the commuting zones were. And what's interesting is that you know if you live in Los Angeles or New York or areas where there are loads of different uh, employers, your wages uh, tend to be much higher than if you live in areas that are much more highly concentrated. And so generally, if you're living in smaller towns, you might have uh, fewer potential employers employing, and that's one reason why wages don't go up. So it's interesting that that overlaps very closely with votes for Trump, but people in, in no way connected lack of opportunities or lack of bargaining power with essentially corporate concentration. They were, were annoyed generally, but didn't realize that a lot of this comes from the fact that they just don't have a lot of choices when it comes to where they work. I love the term, if you're going to climb a ladder, make sure it's against the right wall. And it came to mind when I read your brief history of Silicon Valley and the story you share of non-compete clauses and noise and more in particular. Yes, the history of Silicon Valley itself is is one that's based on poaching of employees, uh, employees leaving companies. And, you know, this might sound horrible to a businessman thinking like, oh, no, how could a business flourish if employees leave? The truth is, if you look at, for example, um, Intel itself, uh, Intel was founded, uh, it came from a, a group of scientists who initially moved out to the West Coast to work in Shockley Semiconductors. And um, Shockley was uh, a genius. He won a Nobel Prize, but he was also a total asshole. And um, he had brought this team of very talented people. They all couldn't work with him. They left and, and joined Fairchild Semiconductor. And Fairchild, though, was using essentially the business as a cash cow to then invest in other things. And they didn't really like that. So they jumped ship. And then they started Intel Corporation. It was seven men who did that. And so like, the, the very founding history, in a way, of Silicon Valley in the modern world was people leaving one company to go to another and start their own thing. And over time, all the people from Intel essentially ended up funding a lot of the other businesses there. Hewlett Packard, likewise, they, they ended up doing a lot of the angel investing. And so Steve Jobs thought that Bob Noyce from Intel was like God 
and you know learned a lot of lessons. But unfortunately, one of that he didn't learn from him was essentially the sort of importance of workers having freedom. So Wozniak left Hewlett Packard to work with Steve Jobs. But years later, Steve Jobs and, and Google and others reached an agreement to not poach each other's workers, and they ended up having to pay a few hundred million dollars in settlement uh, to the workers. But one of the reasons why Silicon Valley is so successful is that talent isn't tied down and that people can go and start new companies. And so when you have non-competes, you make the labor market a lot more rigid and workers aren't paid as well. Yeah, and you talk about all these companies, the monopolies, as I, as I call them after reading the book, they have so much power in the marketplace, but also to the workforce. But I thought it was really interesting. The gateway and the amount of tech stack that they've built up, they own the ecosystem as well. And here you mention who will guard the guardians, if they're the guardians to the internet, for example. And you mentioned the fascinating story of Foundum. Yes. So what's very interesting is that because Google controls 90% uh, of the search market and they are going into other areas, they're able effectively to decide what gets shown on the first page. And the most important thing is essentially the first four or five links. Most people don't even go to the bottom of the page or to the second page. And so Google can favor its own results uh, you know, in, in many different industries. They can make sure that you have to essentially pay them to get promoted and so uh, through that, Google you know, is able to demote rivals. And the example I gave was Foundum, which you know, was, was not a, a big startup. I mean, it may have uh, failed over time, but what was certainly true is that Google was favoring its own search results. And you find this uh, in, in many other areas. It's not just that one. But you get this problem, too, with Facebook, where you know, Facebook, for example, decided that they didn't want uh, Vine, which was Twitter's uh, video platform, to appear on Facebook. And so... These, these companies essentially are able to keep out uh, competitors and uh, do so on a discriminatory basis. And that's one of the things that came through with the lawsuit against Facebook when all, all the documents became public over in the UK. Um, so the, the platforms, uh, Amazon's also a platform, they can discriminate against sellers. So almost half of the sales on Amazon are third-party sellers. And Amazon is able to uh, see what sells and what's not. They're able to promote their own products above other people's products. They're able to go straight to the manufacturer and cut out potential competitors. So being in a position you know, where you, you are the platform, you can essentially control the access of your competitors to potential customers. Yeah, and you mentioned here that I thought was fascinating. I didn't realize there's so many fake goods on Amazon as well, but I thought it would be interesting to mention the case Amazon had with diapers.com. What's very interesting is that because there are strong feedback loops in, in a platform you know, where you want all the buyers and sellers in the same place, uh, they're not necessarily incentivized to raise prices immediately. And, and so much of the antitrust law is geared at uh, sort of punishing firms that merge and then raise prices. Uh, so Amazon and some of the internet companies, you know, they actually uh, are, are happy to lose money in the short run and not raise prices because what they just simply want is uh, greater market share, kill off their rivals, and then eventually to control that revenue stream. And so Amazon was, co was competing with a website, diapers.com, uh, and uh, Amazon, of course, wanted to get into that industry, that business too. And so they just started losing loads of money by basically sort of subsidizing their own uh, diaper service. And then they went uh, back to them and said, look, we, we're going to buy you. And if, and if you don't sell, we're just going to keep on losing lots of money until you go out of business. And of course, what happened, they ended up selling themselves to Amazon. And so you find this repeatedly with uh, many startups, essentially, where they're, they're essentially forced 
to sell to the bigger player due to the threat of ongoing losses. We often hear this when you talk to a startup and they go, they made me a deal, I couldn't refuse it. And, and oftentimes we think that's a good answer, but what they're trying to tell you in code is we had no choice. Yes, I think that from a lot of the entrepreneurs I've spoken to, many of them would like to continue competing. Um, but you know, when you have, for example, Amazon has AWS, which is their uh, web service, which is highly profitable. And then they plow all that profit into other areas, uh, essentially to have um, what's known as uh, predatory pricing, where they essentially underprice um, to cut people out of business. Um, and that's essentially what uh, the AWS service allows them to do. They would certainly not be able to subsidize uh, last mile delivery to the extent that they've done, and they would not be able to subsidize money losing uh, ventures to the extent that they've done without um, AWS. With all this concentration, we've seen a drop in the amount of IPOs, and it's not often because of market conditions, it's actually because they can't, they're blocked out. Yeah, so this year we've seen a couple of very, very large IPOs. We've seen uh, Uber and Lyft, uh, but in general, those are the exceptions. Uh, in the not 80s and 90s, uh, you know, you were seeing sort of three, 400 IPOs per year. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen sort of 70 to 80 IPOs, and uh, half of all public companies have disappeared since 1997. So even as the economy gets a lot bigger, we actually have fewer companies that are, are publicly listed. And so in a, in a way, you know, if this was the population and, you know, you said you talked about, you know, Ireland or the UK and you said, you know, the population is going to be shrinking by half. I mean, this would be a, a great cause for alarm. One thing I'd love to do is, and you do this so brilliantly in the book, is you give us a story of how we got here. What happened in the past that got us to the point that we're at today? And I'd love to jump into the DeLorean now and go back to the past and to the points where you talk about these great the great philanthropy of the Robert Barons, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, and Stanford, but also like the tech giants, they have a darker side. Yes. In the end of the 19th century in the United States, there were quite a lot of uh, companies competing, whether it was in uh, sugar refining, whether it was in railroads, steel, and uh, the oil industry. What ended up happening was that there were a series of mergers that ended up putting the industry into the hands of very few people. Uh, so there were like massive merger waves. And the people who ended up controlling these industries were essentially called uh, robber barons. And the term itself comes from medieval Germany. There were barons who had lands. And if a peasant wanted to cross the lands, they would have to pay a tax or a toll to the, uh, to the baron. And the baron didn't use this money to keep the road in better repair. Uh, these were just essentially transfers of money from peasants to the very wealthy. And so in the end, uh, these sort of toll roads on daily life uh, led these barons to be called robber barons. And the American press used this term uh, to talk about the monopolists. That's where the term robber baron comes from. And because of the outrage uh, that against many of these uh, monopolists, particularly when it came to, to railroads, where a lot of the farmers felt that they had no choice uh, but to be gouged by the railroads to get their goods to markets, there was a reform. So you had the, um, uh, in 1887, essentially there was the uh, uh, Interstate Commerce Commission was created. But then in 1890, the most significant uh, antitrust act was passed, which was the Sherman Antitrust Act. And that really is essentially the act that created modern antitrust. Um, it, it wasn't uh, sort of perfectly or well enforced. And so you've got another act in, in 1914, which is the Clayton Antitrust Act. And those two acts really essentially are the ones that sort of guide uh, antitrust in the U.S. and essentially the rest of the world. It was um, for, for for decades. You had a few cases that 
were uh, brought through in 1911. Standard Oil was broken up, and uh, you know Rockefeller ended up owning uh, the various parts that were broken up. But then they were all able to compete, and it was only though essentially in the 1930s the antitrust became very aggressively enforced under um, FDR. And so uh, the, from 1930s on, essentially, um, to the early 1980s, uh, the uh, Department of Justice and the FTC, which was the, the body created to um, you know, help in, ensure competition, made sure that direct competitors couldn't buy each other and reduce competition. All that started changing, essentially, in the early 80s. Um, in, the, in the late 60s and 70s, you had the University of Chicago and Robert Bork arguing that mergers were actually good. That if companies could merge, they could then become more efficient, they could lower prices. And so it made sense to uh, allow mergers. And when Reagan was elected, he appointed a man to the Department of Justice, uh, Baxter, William Baxter, who revised the guidelines and said that mergers uh, were, were actually okay and made it easier for companies to merge. And so, you know, while the mergers may have been too restrictive in the 70s, the problem is once they started going down that path, you know, we're now sitting here almost 40 years later. And it's like the World Cup or uh, the um, NCAA Sweet 16, where you start with uh, sort of 16 teams and then you go down to eight and then to four and then to two. And in many industries, we've essentially gone down to four to two players. Uh, and so what started out as essentially a, a loosening of conditions is now essentially turned into monopolies and oligopolies in a wide variety of industries. And so that's how we got to where we are today. It's been, uh, you know, four separate merger waves in the last four decades. I thought the history was like a physical version of what we're seeing today. We're seeing the digital version in the connection of the war rubber barons control the arteries of commerce, the physical ones, transport and transport routes, for example. But now the tech giants control the gateway to the web. If you look back at the railroads, the fear back then uh, rightly was that, you know, if you wanted to get your coal to market or you wanted to get your uh, wheat to market, you, you didn't have much choice and you had to pay the railroads whatever they demanded. And that's one of the things that led to a reform. In a way, nowadays, uh, when you're looking at uh, Facebook and, and Google, essentially they're very much sort of digital railroads. Um, and so, you know, if, if you want to be able to reach, uh, they have a, a duopoly when it comes to online advertising. And if you want to reach people on the web, you, you pretty much have no choice. And so I would argue that we haven't really seen the legislation adapt itself to the 21st century. And we haven't actually seen one that these these companies uh, probably shouldn't be allowed to exist in the form that they do. Um, Facebook was allowed to buy Instagram, uh, which uh, should have been blocked. Uh, Google was allowed to buy DoubleClick. So th this uh, duopoly that we have was in no way inevitable, but it happened. And, and now that it does happen, essentially these companies really do control whether people are able to access uh, you know, uh, potential clients and customers. And just as that was a blueprint for Google, looking back at the past and the rubber barons, we're seeing actually the impact. So the unforeseen consequences of that happening as well in today, just like happened with IG Farben and the control of rubber coming back to bite America in the ass when it came to World War II. The antitrust essentially came from the United States. Uh, so the United States uh, passed the Sherman Act in 1890, the Clayton Act in 1914. Uh, most countries in the world did not have an antitrust tradition and had not passed uh, similar laws. During World War II, uh, the United States became convinced that one of the reasons why Hitler rose to power was that large German companies, uh, often referred to as cartels, um, you know, that controlled entire industries, uh, were evil and had helped uh, support Hitler. 
there's obviously debate between historians, you know, how closely tied to Hitler, you know, were the German business elites. Um, but the, it's, in a way, it's almost irrelevant. What's uh, certain and what we know is that um, Eisenhower and the U.S. generals and U.S. policy was um, that to, to decartelize Germany, to decentralize it. And so if you look at the Potsdam Agreement, one of the key objectives after the war was to make sure that these cartels couldn't control Germany. And so the U.S. then exported antitrust to Germany and to the rest of the world, essentially uh, in the post-war era. And that's one reason why so many European countries have antitrust and competition law. Uh, the irony, of course, is that the U.S. now, um, broadly, the authorities in the FTC and the DOJ don't really care about uh, anti-competitive mergers, uh, whereas the Europeans, in a way, uh, still uh, have the American ideas that were exported to them uh, you know, in, in the post-war period. One thing I feel we need to call out, Jonathan, and it's something I really got for this, from this book, and I was so happy to share your work, is that economists bemoaned how the Sherman Act must have killed so many innovations. And as this is the innovation show, I'd like to say, I would have bought that line in the past. I would have seen regulation as, as an evil, but now I see it as a necessary evil, as an essential. And this is the case when we see the damage concentration can do. One has to have a very nuanced view about uh, regulation, and I have an entire chapter in the book about it. And so I'm not a sort of um, against regulation or in favor of it. I think that what we have to have is essentially a very thoughtful approach, which is that too much regulation is undoubtedly bad and leads to very significant barriers of en to entry and to more concentrated industries. So if you look at um, Dodd-Frank in the banking sector, that's a 2,200-page a uh, law that was passed. Uh, you've had almost no new banks that started after Dodd-Frank was passed. But if you look at like the previous law that governed banking was um, Glass-Steagall, and that was 35 pages, and you had lots of new banks that were created. So very high degrees of regulation can kill off startups and productivity. Um, and so that, that's the, the bad side to regulation. Antitrust, um, I, I think, is slightly different. Antitrust, you know, it doesn't need to be extensive. And in fact, the Sherman and the Clayton Act are relatively short. But what it does is it prevents anti-competitive conduct. And so, you know, you, you uh, shouldn't have mergers that can go through where uh, entire industries can end up in two hands or three hands. Uh, you shouldn't have uh, companies that can uh, price predatorily, or you shouldn't have companies that can tie products together, meaning that you know, uh, if they, if one company has a monopoly in product A, they can then force you to buy product B. I think antitrust is a regulation that I am broadly in favor of. And in other areas, I would be much more in favor of deregulation, which is, you know, these need to be pro-competitive. We need to make sure that, um, you know, only big companies can uh, afford all the lawyers to, you know, and, and accountants to comply with something. We need to make sure that, you know, startups can be able to comply with rules too. One of the many killer lines in the book says it all to me. He said, during World War I, as hundreds of thousands of men were dying in the trenches, French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau said, war is too important to be left to the generals. Today, capitalism is too important to be left to the economists. I learned so much from this. This is the threat of working to theory rather than practice and experience. Some economists have criticized me because of this. I, you know, I have a degree in economics. I like economists. I think they're tremendous contributions. I think the problem is when economists essentially become economists for hire, which is what's happened, then you know, mergers are waved through on the basis of sort of supposed and imaginary uh, synergies and efficiencies. That, that's, I think, a very bad way to run policy, which is that 
you know, the principle of the, of the law, you know, the, the letter and spirit of these acts is to prevent anti-competitive mergers. And once we sort of outsource policy to these experts, you know, who uh, claim that they're going to help us, I think that's a problem. And the truth is that economists, you know, are often wrong. The, these uh, theories haven't actually borne out in practice. And in the book, I point out uh, my colleague, uh, Denise and I, uh, she helped me uh, write this, uh, even though I'm the main writer. But the, the, what we point out is that there's quite a lot of studies showing that when you end up with fewer than six players in an industry, you end up with price increases. And so most of these submissions by economists to get mergers approved um, you know, or essentially it's garbage in, garbage out, and they create these models that, uh, you know, argue for mergers, and then, you know, the, the mergers, uh, the synergies don't bear out, and the prices go up. And the sad thing is, that, and I've written a piece for the American Conservative on this, there's a revolving door at the FTC and the DOJ between the top lawyers known as K Street, which is the main street where all the legal firms are in Washington, D.C., and between the top two economic consulting groups, uh, Charles Rivers Associates and Compass Lexicon, and you know the, the FTC and the DOJ. So you get this revolving door where these organizations and institutions do not serve the public and the consumer. What they do is they serve their future clients who want to merge. So Jonathan, to wrap up, if you had a moment to present to the Department of Justice and the EU and any other regulators across the globe, what would be your message? In the last chapter of the book, we outline a, a few very simple things, and I would encourage them to read the entire last chapter, but the one-minute answer is, one, I would prevent future mergers that are anti-competitive. So you know, we need to make sure that in the future, we're not making the same mistakes as in the past. Secondly, we need to undo the mistakes of the past. So in industries where mergers have gone through that should not go through, we should undo those. And then thirdly, we need to make sure that laws are pro-competitive and that we don't end up with extremely costly uh, rules and regulations that create barriers to entry around industries. Those are the three things I think that are most important in terms of making sure that competition remains alive. And Jonathan, if people want to find out more about your work, your business, et cetera, where can they find you? So I am on Twitter, jtepper2. I used to tweet a lot. Uh, lately, I've been tweeting a little less, but I tend to tweet about economics and business and markets. Also, I founded a company called Variant Perception. Our clients are hedge funds, asset managers, and family offices. So if you work at a, a bank or financial institution or hedge fund, uh, we, we provide investment strategy. And then occasionally I write and blog just on anything that sort of uh, I think is interesting. Uh, and you can find that at jonathan-tepper.com or just type Jonathan Tepper into uh, your search engine. And that's where you can find me. Author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition, Jonathan Tepper, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much.